In John chapter 1 through chapter 5, we see a clear example of some of the principles Jesus used in developing his initial followers, his chair to disciples. Uh, let's look at the text. First off, I'm taken to John chapter 1, and verse 43 is where we find the first time that Jesus is going to go to someone, and he's going to say, follow me, a chair to challenge. But I love the pattern of it. In verse 35 and in verse 29, it says the next day. And then it says the next day. And by the time we get to verse 30, 43, it's the next day again. And it says Jesus on the next day, so with the fourth day into it, now goes and he says he finds Philip. And he goes to Philip and he doesn't give the challenge, come and see. He gives the challenge of follow me. It's the Greek word akolatheo. It's a different meaning. It means to line up behind, to learn of me, to follow me, to accompany me, to join me. It's a higher level challenge. We don't know why Jesus gives that first challenge to Philip. Maybe because he was from Bethsaida and Simon and Andrew had the day before went and told him we found the Messiah and, and Philip believed. And, and now Jesus says, Philip, I want you to follow me because he literally goes and finds Philip. And I love how the text then turns around and Philip runs and gets Nathaniel and uses the same chair one challenge. Come and see, we found the Messiah. Well, it's great to see you all here this morning in uh, this first Sunday of the autumn of the year. And if you're worshiping with us online this morning, we're grateful that you've uh, joined us as well. Um, we're in this series, The Four Chairs, and, and this was chair one, this um, portable, rather uncomfortable um, camp chair that represents the seeker. Now, if you weren't here last week, or if you were already dozing off this early in the sermon last week, let me remind you what this chair represents. It represents the person who is spiritually on the move, who hasn't decided whether to put down roots of faith now or ever, for that matter. It's the person who doesn't feel like he or she belongs to any spiritual family who is still kicking the tires before they buy into this vehicle of faith. Seekers have lots of questions. They have lots of doubts. They want to be certain before they make their choice. They may have lived through a bad spiritual experience somewhere along the way. They may have seen a really lousy hypocritical example from some Christian. But this is for certain. The seeker is uncomfortable with what he has discovered about faith or hasn't discovered about faith, he's also uncomfortable with his doubts. That's chair one. Today we're in chair two, the believer's chair. Seeker's chair, today the believer's chair. And this step in our faith journey is best represented by two other chairs up here, okay? Now, don't, don't let this confuse you. You're, some of you are saying, wait a minute, this is the four chair series. Does this mean we've now gone to the five chair series? No, we're still in the four chairs. These two chairs, these two images represent for me chair two. Think of it like this. If I said today we're going to talk about car seats, children's car seats, you don't have a different image in your mind because it takes several images to, to capture all that. We got a picture here of different kinds of car seats. You have your backward facing car seat for an infant when he comes home from the hospital. You have your larger 
car seat for a toddler so they can face forward, but they're still in the back seat. Then you have the booster chair there on the bottom. They're not yet out of the car seat, but they're not quite in that big contraption and the seat belt works. And then you have the car seat that we used when I was a kid. <laughs> Just hooked over the back of bench seats that didn't have a latch. It's a wonder any of us survived into adulthood. But all of those images are necessary to give us a clear picture of car seats. I think these two seats give us a clear picture of what seat two in our journey is all about. A high chair is the first image that comes to mind. When we cross over from unbelief to faith, we begin our spiritual journey as infants, as followers of Christ. Now, no child, you know this, no child is born independent and mature. An infant requires diligent focus and attention by the parents as they begin this journey of growth in this world. An infant's diet is pretty simple. And as that child grows, the parents begin to add baby cereal and then semi-solid pureed foods that to an adult look rather nasty and if I remember right, taste pretty nasty. Eventually, the child grows big enough that he or she eats at the big table with the parents and then eats the food that we eat for the rest of our lives. So a high chair represents this starting place. The high chair also reminds us that mentally and emotionally, children don't always make wise choices. They, they are not mature at the point of adulthood. Okay, we, we know that, but sometimes we forget that. <laughs> I saw this picture this week of this three-year-old <laughs> who smeared her baby brother with peanut butter. I don't know where mom was at the time this all happened, but that happened pretty quick. They both seem to be having a good time, and you're saying, who in their right mind would smear their baby brother with peanut butter? Well, that's just the point. A three-year-old isn't in her right mind yet. She's growing. She's maturing. No three-year-old is capable of making wise decisions like that. We don't expect a three-year-old to babysit a toddler because they aren't there yet. This, um, this picture is of our youngest granddaughter, Taylor. Back in the spring of the year, Taylor is three years old. Uh, all children at this age seem to be fascinated with words about well, biological functions uh, that are not necessarily pleasant or appropriate all the time. Taylor has been taught that she's not to use those kinds of words. But I love this child. She just can't always keep those words in. They just got to get, get out. And so she reasoned that if she spoke them into the milk can on the front porch... <laughs> That her venting chamber, as her Uncle Matt calls it, would keep them quiet. Bless her heart, she just doesn't realize that a milk can is more like a megaphone than it is a hiding place. <laughs> but I, lo I love her thoughts. I got to get this out. But it's going into the can. Maybe some of you need a milk can for some of your words. You see, the high chair is where a Christian begins his or her journey as well. Peter writes to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2, so get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. 
Being infants in the faith, new Christians need extra care, extra grace, extra teaching. They cannot be expected to act or think like someone who's been growing in the faith for 20 or 30 or 40 years. It's absurd to expect maturity from a toddler in the home. It's equally absurd to expect maturity in the infant Christian in the church. Now, church... This is where we have often dropped the ball. Once a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ and makes the profession with their words and with the baptism, with their baptism, we kind of brush off our hands and think, okay, my job is done. Actually, actually, our job is just beginning. Can you imagine parents bringing home an infant, an infant from the hospital. They take him to the bedroom and say, here's your room. Dad says, you know, supper, the evening meal will be served at five o'clock. Son, there on the nightstand is a list of your chores. Good luck. We'll see you at supper. Now, no parent would do something like that. You know that an infant requires constant attention. But that's oftentimes what we do spiritually in the church. Oh, you, you, you've become a Christian? Wonderful. Good luck. We'll see you around the table on Sunday morning. If we aren't careful, we become critical with new Christians because they don't often think or act like we who are supposed to be spiritually mature. And why should they? Maturity doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight physically. It doesn't happen overnight spiritually. It takes time and it is our responsibility to help them grow, not complain because they are immature. It's fun in the family to see how older siblings help the younger siblings grow up. It's also fun in the kingdom of God, the family of the church, to watch the older siblings, mature siblings, help the young siblings Grow up to be more like Christ. And growing is a fun process. (laughs) As children, it feels like it'll take forever before we get to do the fun things. Do you remember as a kid? How many of you couldn't wait to sit at the grown-ups table at holiday time? Because you were always confined to the children's table. When you get up, when you grow up, you'll sit at the big people's table. We're told that when we grow older, we'll earn a driver's license. We'll learn how to shave. Boy, that one was a disappointment. We'll get an education. We'll have a job, we'll get married, we'll own a car, we'll own a home, and the list goes on. But these moments and events are not necessarily indicative of maturity. Aging and maturing are not synonymous in the physical realm. You see, we don't expect kids to make mature decisions. They're kids. We do expect with the passing of years an increase in maturity. What do you think? What do you think when you see an eight-year-old sitting in this chair? Your conclusion is something's drastically wrong. In Scripture, the concept of maturing or growing up is equivalent with spiritual maturity. If you don't mature, you remain a spiritual infant. And when you've been an infant for decades, something is dreadfully wrong in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the apostle Paul writes this to the ancient church. He said, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it yet. Indeed, you still are not ready. You are still worldly. 
Paul's writing to Christians who are still in the high chair. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. There is much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know what to do or how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So when you see a Christian who's been a Christian for 10 years and they're still acting like somebody who sits in this chair, you got to scratch your head and say, wait a minute, there's something dreadfully wrong here. Which brings us then to the second chair, a well-worn recliner. A lazy boy, if you please. Oh, after three services, I could get used to this for the rest of the sermon. <laughs> this feels pretty good. You know, I, I, people ask me all the time, how come we don't have these in the church? We have pews. Well, there, there's two quick answers for that. First one is, these take up a lot more room. You couldn't get near as many people in, in the auditorium as you can with pews. And the second thing is, if you sleep so well on pews, imagine what would happen if we installed these. <laughs> Preaching would be a lost art. So why this chair? Because it represents the danger that most of us face. The key word in our study this morning about chair two is the word transformation. If we move from the spiritual high chair right to the spiritual lazy boy chair, we stop growing. We get too comfortable and the transformation process grinds to a halt. Let me repeat that statistic that I gave you two weeks ago. 87% of Christians never move out of chair two. They're stuck in the lazy boy. We often treat our spiritual growth like we do physical growth. You see, a human size is set from birth. We grow until we reach a genetically predetermined size. That's the way it is with us humans. But not all of God's creation is that way. Reptiles, some amphibians and marine life, sharks and whales, as well as trees, continue to grow as long as they are alive. Spiritual transformation is to be like that, never ending. As long as you've got breath, you are growing in Christ. So how do I measure this transformational process? How do I know that I'm really growing spiritually? Well, let me give you just a handful of mile markers along the journey, all right? These, these will be markers that will say, I'm, I'm, making, I'm making progress. And that's really what we're looking for, progress. You're not looking for immediate growth. It's, it's a long journey. The first mile marker is that a new Christian must learn to walk on his own. In other words, your faith must become personal. It may have started out that if somebody said, why are you a Christian? You might, you might say, well, my grandparents were Christians and my parents were Christians. I've got brothers and sisters who are Christians. I'm, I'm a Christian. It has to move from that to I'm a Christian because I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, God's son. And I don't care if my grandparents don't believe and I don't care if my mom and dad don't believe and I don't care if my sisters don't believe. I am going to believe with all my heart. When it becomes your personal faith, when you move away from a borrowed faith to an owned faith, you have learned to walk on your own. And that's a mile marker on this journey. Here's another mile marker. A new Christian must learn to feed him or herself. 
There comes a point when you and I must become responsible for our own spiritual food. Yes, it is good. And I'm going to encourage you to participate in classes and life groups and discussions around here. But that cannot be our sole source of nourishment. If the only spiritual food you get every week is a 25-minute sermon, I'm here to tell you, you're going to starve to death. What you and I need to do is develop our own diet. We must grow and feed ourselves. Here's another mile marker. A new Christian must learn to live a God-honoring life. Now, it's, it's, it's certainly true that we do not do good things in order to be saved. We are saved by the grace of God because nobody's good enough. So why do good things? Ah, when we become a Christian, we have a new family name. And when I become concerned, when I become more concerned about the way I live outside these walls than the way I appear inside these walls, I know transformation is beginning to take place. When I walk away from behaviors of the past that would have been second nature to me in the past in order to please my heavenly father in the present, then I know that transformation is taking place. How then does a Christian move beyond the lazy boy where it is so comfortable to be? I could stay here. I could stay here indefinitely. There's just something welcoming about this. But you see, God has not encouraged us to be comfortable. God has challenged us to be committed. This transformational maturing process is a must for all of us. And I'm amazed how easily we justify our lack of spiritual growth. It's as though we view the commands of the Bible as being for everybody else, but uh, I can fudge on those for me. I mean, God will surely make exception for my outbursts of anger. They're not like other people's outbursts of anger. Or, the Lord knows I don't gossip. Everything I tell is true. Or, obviously God understands I'm way too busy to read his word. He's not bothered that I never pick up the scriptures. Or, God will not blame me for that affair. After all, God brought that person into my life. It was simply inevitable that it would happen. Such rationalization flows from immaturity. Those are things you're going to hear from Christians who are sitting here in this seat. God's word demands transformation in us because God has a divine purpose for us. And a lot of people are still struggling with that purpose. <laughs> I read about a woman who had her deceased husband's ashes put into an egg timer because she still wanted him to help out in the kitchen. <laughs> that poor man was hurting for a purpose, you know. Our chief purpose in life is to honor God in all that we do. Dallas Willard wrote, he said, Christian spiritual formation is the process of transforming all essential dimensions of the self toward Christ-likeness. Now, let me, let me wind up this morning by briefly giving you five tools of transformation that I believe are essential for getting out of this chair. Chair two, but really this side of the chair to picture the lazy boy. And, and please hear me say this. If, you, if, you, if, you, if you've been wandering through the land of Nod for the last few minutes, come back to me. Hear me say this. Everybody listen. I do not present this as one who has a handle on these five areas. The longer I live and minister, the more challenging such transformations become. I too, you see, like the lazy boy, I too would like to spend the rest of my life here. So, Hear me share these things as one who struggles just like you struggle 
with getting it right. Here's the first one. Spiritual transformation develops through dependence on God's spirit in us. When we become Christians, when we become followers of Jesus Christ, God takes up residence in our lives. Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. Now, folks, I cannot understand that. I cannot comprehend that. I cannot explain that. I do not feel him inside of me. I do not hear an audible voice in my ear. But I believe that the promise of God is true. I believe, however God can do it, that God's spirit takes up residence in our life because I know, I know I could not get through this life and be transformed spiritually without his personal assistance. I suspect you're the same way. Here's tool number two. Spiritual transformation develops through dependence upon prayer. Jesus, God incarnate, took time to pray. Can transformation in our lives happen without heartfelt prayer? I mean, prayer's not hard to understand. It's just hard to undertake. It's, it is so easy, again, to rationalize not praying. I mean, when I get around to it, I will pray. When I have something really important, important, important enough to bother God with, I, I'll pray. God's too busy running the universe. He don't want to hear from me. If there's a crisis, maybe I'll pray. We wouldn't be so flippant with our earthly relationships if our spouses, children, friends, and neighbors never talked to us. We'd call them on it. And what kind of a relationship do you have if you never talk? It takes discipline. Why are we so reluctant to talk to God? Gary Thomas wrote, he said, anyone can date God. The truly mature seek to be his faithful, lifelong companions. And that takes communication. The verb and the noun form of prayer appear 375 times in the Bible. That's no small matter, folks. Pray continually, the scriptures say. Pray for help, the scriptures teach us. If, in any, if anyone is in trouble, let him pray, the scriptures teach us. Be self-controlled so you can pray, the scriptures teach us. And the list goes on. Here's the third tool. Spiritual transformation develops through dependence on God's word. Jesus used scripture in every aspect of his life. A research project conducted in 2008 discovered this significant insight regarding spiritual growth. You ready for this? This is not going to come as a surprise. When it comes to spiritual formation, what we discovered is not complicated. Statistically, the number one issue correlated to higher maturity scores was the discipline of daily Bible reading. There you have it. Doesn't get any more profound or simple than that. If you want to mature as a Christian, study the Bible. You cannot know God apart from his word. He has revealed himself to us within its pages. You say, wait a minute, I thought he revealed himself to Je through Jesus Christ. He did. How do you know about Jesus Christ? About him, you find out through the word. I know God leads our lives in a variety of ways, but he will never lead us in a way that is contradictory to his word. The great German theologian and preacher Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, the words that come from God will be the steps upon which we find our way to God. Grounded in the scripture, we learn to speak to God in the language which God has spoken to us. We learn to speak to God as a child speaks to its mother. The entire Bible then is the word in which God allows himself to be found by us. Study the scriptures. Here's another one. Spiritual formation develops through being quiet and listening. In our chaotic culture, solitude 
and quiet is hard to come by. Now, can I tell you, now, all, all of these are a challenge to me. Every one of them is a challenge to me. But this one is really hard for me. I don't like being quiet. I, I don't like being still. Um, I don't know if it's just the way I'm wired. I don't know if it's growing up in our country where it's, you know, we've got to get things done kind of. A th- I have a hard time just being still. To sit and to think feels like a waste of time, but it's not. God is most often heard, remember, in the still, small voice. Psalm 37, 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways. Psalm 46, 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We need to learn how to be still, to think, because I think it is in the stillness, it is in the quiet moments, that God may teach us some of life's best lessons. Last thing, Spiritual transformation develops through giving. <laughs> Well-dressed man was startled in the alley by a, a thief who said, give me all your money. And the gentleman, rather dignified gentleman, kind of straightened his shoulder and said, I'll have you know I am a U.S. senator. And the thief said, oh, in that case, give me back my money. <laughs> so what about giving back God's money? I mean, it, it is all his. That's what the scriptures teach us. And, and, and it is, this doesn't come easily. It doesn't come naturally. I mean, in the first place, we consider what we earn as ours because we've earned it with the sweat of our brow. That's what we've convinced ourselves. And in a sense, that's very true. If you've got a job and you work hard at that job, you get paid for that job, you have earned that money. But God is the one that I believe provides us with this whole concept of work and, and provides us with a job. And after all, if God is God, we think he doesn't need what I have to give. And you're absolutely right. God does not need your gift. But then that's not why he commands us to give. It is a discipline that strengthens our lives and advances his work in this world. You see, God really did partner with us. God could have taken care of all of this stuff we call reaching out to the lost. But God said, I want to work with you. I'm going to leave it in your hands. And so when we give, it helps accomplish that work. When we give, it is an act of worship. When we give, it is an expression of deep appreciation and thanksgiving. Giving is the expression of true dependence upon him. And there it is. That's the bottom line. When we learn to give, it is one of those transformational moments of maturity that demonstrates our trust in the power and the promise of God. God doesn't need our money But we need the discipline of giving and trusting. So when I give, I'm getting to a point where I say, okay, God, I'm going to trust your promise. I'm letting go of this that I've worked really hard for. Because I believe that your promise that you'll take care of me is more than what I'm giving. So when we learn to give, it is a part of that transformational maturing in Christ. Well, all the information in the world on transformation won't mean anything if we don't get out of this chair. Chair two, especially this good old comfy lazy boy chair and start maturing. Debbie K. Hope wrote, self-discipline is when your conscience tells you to do something and you don't talk back. So today, I want you to make a commitment to change spiritual behavior. Start now, not when winter comes or when the kids are gone or when you retire. Start now. Get some reasonable goals that move you in the right direction. Change your priority. Be driven by the important, not just the urgent. 
Grow little by little. If you bite off more than you can chew, you'll choke. And when you choke, you'll get discouraged and you'll stop growing. Little by little. Growth doesn't have to be in leaps. It can be in baby steps, remember? And then do something new to stimulate formation. Join a life group. Take on a service project. Start a Bible reading program. Increase your giving and thus your trust that God will provide. The bottom line is, getting out of this chair is your responsibility. Only you can choose to grow. There is no force feeding in the church of Jesus Christ. I read a story uh, about the, the Alamo uh, today. Um, I actually, I don't know if the story's true, okay? So I called the Alamo this week to verify the story. All I got was voicemail. I didn't talk to any living person, which I guess I shouldn't be surprised since there were no survivors at the Alamo. <laughs> but but this, this is how the story goes, okay? Supposedly, near the entrance... The main entrance to the Alamo hangs a portrait with this inscription underneath. James Butler Bonham. No portrait of him exists. This is a portrait of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family. That people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. We have no earthly pictures of Jesus or descriptions that we can point to. But we, his followers, we, his followers, should be so transformed and so mature that we bear his image in our words, our thoughts, and our behavior so the world around us can see him in us. This one who died for our spiritual freedom needs to be seen in those of us who are his children. And so that will only happen when we don't settle for chair two. So to help encourage you, I, we thought, what can we do? What can we give you this morning that will help you remember, I don't want to get stuck in either one of these kinds of chairs that represent chair two. So some of our creative folks on staff developed a lock screen that has the four chairs on it. If you want to download, if, you, if you're already on our email list, you should get it uh, uh, right about 1230. It goes out in a mass email. And if you don't get it, you can go on our line and just download it to your smartphone. And so every time it opens up, you'll see the four chairs. And it'll be a reminder to you, I don't want to get stuck in number two. I don't want to be a part of the 87%. You see, the most important thing we can do is to keep growing in Christ so the world will see him, know him, and follow him. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.